We are super excited about all those who have given their life to Christ. Can we just celebrate that one more time? What God is doing in their life. All right. Why don't you get your Bible? Let's open it up to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. That's where we're going to be today. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one at your seat. And of course, uh, if you're watching online, uh, then you can grab your Bible or your browser, whatever you do to, to find God's Word. And let's look at it together. John uh, 17. You know, when uh, somebody gives their final words, their last words, it's really important. It usually is kind of a window into what is really important to them. In fact, uh, back in 2015, there was a, a rumor that Steve Jobs' final words were kind of decrying the pursuit of wealth. In fact, he was reported to have said, quote, the nonstop pursuit of wealth will only turn a person into a twisted being like me, end quote. Uh, later on, that was proved to be false. He did not say that. Those were not his last words. Those were fabricated some years later after his death. But when you talk to his autobiographer or his biographer, Walter Isaacson, he did have intimate conversations with Steve Jobs just before he died. And he said that one thing uh, that Steve didn't mention right before he died was, quote, I wanted my kids to know me, end quote. That after all that he had accomplished, he still grieved the fact that he didn't have a good relationship with his own children. And it give, kind of gives you a window into his heart, right? A window into his soul, a window into what really mattered to him in these final moments. Well, what we're about to read in John 17 are the last words of Jesus. Not his last words on the cross, but his last words with his disciples before he went to the cross. And these words really kind of give you a window into what is on his heart and what he's thinking about. John 17 is a special chapter in the Bible. In fact, some people think it's the most important chapter. It certainly is in the top five or ten in my, in my book. And the reason is because in John 17, there is recorded for us the prayer of Jesus before his arrest and before his crucifixion with his disciples. He's praying. In John chapter 16, he's instructing his disciples. In John chapter 18, he's arrested and headed to the cross. But in John 17, he's in prayer. And so really when we venture into John 17, you're standing on holy ground. You're listening in to the intimate prayer between the Son and the Father. And, and really you're hearing the heart of Jesus more than any other time. And what we're going to find here is that in John 17, that Jesus is going to show us what's on his heart. In fact, if you just kind of dissected this prayer, it breaks down into three parts. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. And he says, Lord, I, I can't wait to receive the glory that I had with you before the beginning of the world. And so he's anticipating his reunion with the Father. In, in verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples, the ones that are with him the men that he had invested his, so much of his life into. But when you get to verses 20 through 26, he prays for somebody else. And that's what we're going to look at today. So let's just look at it real quickly. Uh, look, look at John 17, verse 20. This is the word of God. Jesus saying, Jesus praying, 
I pray not only for these, that is these disciples that are with me, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Now stop there for just a minute. So Jesus is saying, Father, I not only pray for myself and I not only pray for these disciples that are around me, but I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their testimony. Guess what? That's you and that's me. So, you know, when you really think about that, that's an amazing thing that Jesus, right before his death, is thinking of you. He's praying for you. His heart is for you. In fact, this is not the only time that Jesus prays for you. In, John, in Hebrews chapter 7, it says he always lives to intercede for us. So here is Jesus still praying for you in heaven at the right hand of the Father. You know, whenever uh, I do my morning ritual and, you know, do all those things that I do in the morning, part of that is to sit down and open up my Bible and let God speak to me and journal and all the things, not for sermon prep, just for my own heart. And usually I'll write on the side of the margin of a page some names of people and maybe a brief little one or two word description of what I'm praying for for that day for them. Some of you are on that list and I'm praying for you. And if Jesus had a prayer list on this last night, your name would have been on it. He was praying for you. His heart was thinking about you. And what is he praying for? What is he still praying for? Well, let's keep reading. And he tells us, look at verse 21. He said, may they all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So what is it that Jesus was praying for? What, what did he write down on his prayer list about you? He prayed for unity. That's what Jesus prayed for. He prayed that his, his church would be one, that his people would be one. Look at verse 21, may they all be one. Verse 22, so that they may be one. Verse 23, they may be made completely one. See that? So this is what Jesus is praying for. Father, I pray that the church that will believe the testimony of these disciples, that they would be completely one. Now you might listen to that prayer and kind of scratch your head and say, well, you know, I'm not sure that that prayer was answered. I mean, if you just look in the New Testament, in the early church, they had divisions, right? There were, Paul and Barnabas seemed to have a, a parting of ways. It wasn't super smooth, and they had problems. I mean, you look through church history, and you can see schism after schism and division after division. In fact, you may have been caught in the crossfires of, uh, of harsh words and a divided uh, congregation. You may have church hurt from things that happened to you where a church was completely divided and hostile and angry against one another. So how in the world can Jesus be praying that we be one when obviously we don't see a lot of oneness going on? And that's a really good question. In one sense, this oneness that Jesus prayed for is something we already have. In Galatians 3 verse 28, you might want to write that in the margin of your Bible, Galatians 3 verse 28 Paul, the Apostle Paul writes this, he says, there is no Jew nor Greek, 
slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now what he's saying there is that there were all these wedge issues in his day, and he said the, the unity we have in Christ should supersede all these wedge issues, right? So it's not about whether you're Jew or you're Gentile. It's not about whether you're slave or you're free. It's not about whether you are a male or female. These were all the wedge issues of, of their day that tended to separate Christians. He said, no, 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 that doesn't matter. What really matters is our oneness in Christ. Now, if he were writing this today, he might say, there's neither Republican nor Democrat, there's neither masked or unmasked, there's neither vaccinated or non-vaccinated, but that you're all one in Christ Jesus. The, the, the wedge issues of the day cannot be greater than our oneness in Jesus. Now, by the way, folks, that's really important for us to understand that. The primacy of our oneness is Christ. And all these other issues that seek to divide it, we live in a very, very, as you know, incredibly divided world, incredibly one against the other world. And we, and we even see that creeping into the church and we must resist that and say, no, no, we have to bear with one another and care for one another and, and even disagree, agree to disagree because our oneness is in Jesus. We already have that oneness. That's given to us. But on the other hand, it's something that we have to keep. This oneness is something we have to work at. In fact, in Ephesians 4.3, it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, we got to make an effort to keep the unity. we got to make an effort to be one. That, that implies effort. <laughs> How else can I say this? We got to work on it, all right? And so just like a good marriage, you got to work on it to keep it. And like a good friendship, you got to work on it to keep it. Uh, in the same way, we have to work on it to keep that unity that Jesus so prayed for and so longed for. Working on it may mean that I don't respond to something I don't agree with, or it may mean that I bear with my brother or sister, or I, I love them in spite of our disagreements on other things, that I just choose to focus on what unites us and not what divides us, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And so this is what he prayed for. This is what Jesus was on his mind on that night. He prayed that we would be one. So I want to try and unpack this a little bit, these few verses, and try to answer some key questions about this unity. Because if we, listen, if we ever needed this message, we need it now. If we ever need to bear down on this issue of, of Christian unity, we need to bear down on it right now. And so I'm trying to answer some questions here and then how we can experience it today, all right? So here's the first question. If you're taking notes, here's the first question. What kind of unity is this? What kind of unity is he talking about? Well, look at verse 21. He said, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. So get this. The same unity that the Father and the Son have is the same unity he said we should have. Now, I'm going to stretch your brain a little bit here. Try to, try to stretch your thinking a little bit here. The same unity that's within the Trinity is the same unity that we should have in the body of Christ and in our church. The same kind of unity. You say, well, Craig, what kind of unity is that? 
I mean, how do you describe the unity in the Trinity, right? How do you, how do you get your brain around that? Well, let me give you a couple things. One is they were united in love. They were united in love. In fact, you see this all through this prayer. Verse 23, he said, I want them to know that you love them as you have loved me. Verse 24, he says, you love me before the world's foundation. In verse 26, he said, the love that you have loved me with may be in them. In other words, he said, Father, I know that you love me and I love you. Remember in Jesus' baptism, what did the Father say at Jesus' baptism? This is my, what? Beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So the, the, the love that the Father has for the Son and the love that the Son has for the Father, it's that kind of deep, abiding, unchanging, never-ending, consistent, pure, holy love. That, that's part of their unity. Another thing is that they were one in purpose. In John chapter 5, we find Jesus speaking about him and the Father having the same purpose. It says in verse 20 that they have the same will. In verse 36, they have the same work. Earlier in John 17, verse 4, the chapter we're on right now, in John 17, verse 4, he said, Father, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. In other words, there's this work that the Father has, this purpose that the Father has, and Jesus was working along those same lines. They're working together for the same purpose. And of course, that was the purpose of redeeming lost people. And so they have this oneness of love and this oneness of purpose. But they also had something else. And if, if, you, if you struggle to get a hold of those two, this is really going to blow your mind. All right? They had a oneness of bond. Now, let me try to explain this. John 1.1 1, 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word being Christ, He was with God, and He was God. We see this union displayed in other places. In John 10, verse 30, He said, I and the Father are one Again, in, in John 14, when he was trying to describe this to his disciples, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, so what does that mean? How can two be one? I mean, how does that work? And the early church struggled with this. The Council of Nicaea, they struggled with how do we understand this union of the Father and the Son? And they came up with a word called homoousios. Homoousios. Try that this week on some of your friends. They'll think you're incredibly smart, all right? Homoousios means of the same substance, of the same stuff, of the same being. And so while they're distinct in persons, they're one in substance, one in being. And he said, that's, that's our union. Now, I want you to get this. What he said, I pray that they, that he mean us, would be one as we are one. He's saying this, I pray, Father, that they would be united in an unbreakable love for one another. I pray that they would be one in purpose and that they would lock arms and be working together for the sake of the gospel. I mean, Father, I pray that they would be one as a family is one, as brothers and sisters in Christ that can never be broken. I pray for that oneness. In fact, this is echoed by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 verse 2 when he said, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being united in spirit and purpose. I mean, it's exactly what Jesus prayed for. 
That's what he wants for you and for me, is it'd be one. Now, here's what I want you to get, and I want you to lean in on it. I want you to listen to me. I'm your pastor, and I love you, all right? You say, you always say that right before you hit me with something hard, all right? You can't experience this kind of oneness from a distance. You can't experience this kind of oneness of love and oneness of purpose and oneness of family at arm's length. You can't experience it online. You can't experience it even in a big room like this. You can't experience it in a stadium. You can experience some things, but not that. This has to be lived out life on life. This kind of oneness has to, that's, that's why it can only happen really in a group. A group of people that truly love one another. A group of people that seek to know one another and care for one another. A group of people who bear with one another and even disagree with one another, but choose to put Jesus first in front of those disagreements. One that, a group of people that choose to work together for a united purpose. A group of people that choose to be family together. That's what he wants. That's what was on Jesus' mind. And this is why we talk about group life. And this is why we're, we're talking about it now. And I want you to understand when we talk about it's important to get in a group, it's important to get in a group. What I'm trying to do today is anchor that in the very heart of Jesus. That Jesus wants this for you. And if you choose to say, well, yeah, I'm not really into that. I'm not really a group kind of person. You're choosing to not do what Jesus prayed you would do. You understand that? You're going against the heart of Jesus on this. And it's easy to get into a lot of excuses, right? Well, you know, I'm not really a groups kind of person, or, you know, I don't really have time, or I tried that once and it didn't work out, or somebody betrayed a trust in me and I haven't gotten over that, or, or I, you know, I don't need any more friends, or they're, all, they're kind of a lot of reasons and excuses we can make. But what I want you to understand is this was the heart of Jesus for you. And this is how a big church becomes a small family when we choose to be one. So this oneness, this unity is the same unity of the Father and the Son. Second question is this, well, where does this kind of unity come from? How do we get this kind of unity? And look at verse 22, he tells us, I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. So what causes this, us to be one? We'll look at it, he says, I've given the glory you gave me to them. So circle the word glory there. Anytime you see the word glory, what it simply means is God displaying himself, showing himself, showing who he really is. And when you go to commentators and you find out what does this word glory mean in this verse, they're all over the map. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. They're all over the map. If I read five commentaries, there were five different views of what this means, what this glory means. But I'm going to tell you what I think it means, and I'm following the direction of D.A. Carson, who's one of the prominent New Testament scholars in our day. And, and, and this glory, I believe Jesus was referring to, is the gospel. Because in the gospel, God is most glorified. God is most glorified, and we see God for who he really is in the gospel. 
And I think we see this over and over and over in the Bible. For example, when Jesus came and became a man, when Jesus, the, in the incarnation, when he was born in Bethlehem, when he became, the Son of God came to us, we see his glory. John 1.14, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. So it was glorious when Jesus came to us and became a human. It was also glorious when, when he did miracles. In fact, in, in John chapter 2, verse 11, it says that his miracles manifested his glory or showed who he really was, showed his real power. When he healed the sick, when he raised the dead, he was demonstrating his glory and showing us that he was not just an ordinary person. He was revealing his glory. Certainly the, the crucifixion was glorious when he took on our sin and paid the price for us as the Lamb of God. Surely the resurrection he was glorious when he arose victorious from sin and death and, and the grave. Surely his ascension was glorious when he marched into heaven as the conquering king of glory. Uh, yes, he is glorious in all these things. The whole gospel is the gospel of glory. This is why uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he called it, quote, the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so here's the deal. He said, Craig, where are you going with all that? This is important. Because he's saying that this glory that he's given us, this glorious gospel he's given us, is what makes us one. It's what makes us one. Well, how is that? Well, when you hear the gospel and you're convicted of your sin, and you realize that God loves you and that Christ died for you, and you pray to receive Christ, listen, you all of a sudden in that moment become a part united with Jesus and united with other brothers and sisters of Christ. You have been placed into a body of believers. You're placed into a family. And, and that's, that gospel is what makes us one. Now, I want you to hear me all right, lean in here. Hear my heart. If you are expecting political platforms to unite us, you're going to be very disappointed. If you're expecting that everybody agree with your views on our social issues of the day, what you see on your newsfeed is going to unite us, you're going to be disappointed. The, all the world's going to do is divide, 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 right? That's what our culture does. But only the gospel unites. You see? The gospel unites. And, and people can come to Christ from all different persuasions, and they're one in Christ. It is the gospel that unites hearts, and only the gospel that unites hearts. That's why in a divided world, we must focus on the gospel and not the wedge issues of the day. We have to focus on the gospel because the gospel is what produces oneness. And when you look at church history and you look at believers that have suffered under uh, tyrannical leaders or suffered under persecution or, or all kinds of trouble, and we've seen this throughout church history and even today in other parts of the world right now, what, what they do is they're not focusing, these believers are not focusing on the wedge issues of the day. They're focusing on the gospel because the gospel is what makes them one. And in a world like ours right now, the only place where we'll get to oneness and peace and unity is in the gospel. Only Jesus can change a heart. Are you with me? 
So we got to focus on the gospel. That's why Paul said in Romans 1, 16, one of my favorite verses, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of it because it's powerful unto salvation. It's powerful to bring unity. It's powerful to heal hurts. It's powerful to bring together such an eclectic group of people from every race and background and, and everything, every reason in the world we should be divided, but we're not. We're one. We're brother and sister in Jesus Christ. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can do that. So what kind of unity is he talking about? He's talking about the unity that that Jesus experienced with his father, this unity of love and purpose and family. And the way we get that is through the gospel. And, and the, the, here's the last question. Well, what's the result of this unity? What, what will this produce? And look at verse 23. He tells us, that the world may know that you have sent me. Title of the message today is that the world may know. And this is the end result of our unity. Our unity is that the world will see that we're different. That the world will see our unity and be drawn to it. This is what Jesus prayed for. He said, Lord, I pray that your people will be so one in love and so one in purpose and so one as a family because of the gospel and that they'll be sharing that gospel that everyone that's heard and everybody that's divided will be drawn to it like a magnet. You know, uh, a while back, our family watched a movie, The Twelve Mighty Orphans. I don't know if you guys have seen this movie. It's, it's a great movie. I recommend it. It's, it's, um, it's a true story based, shot right here in Fort Worth, and the whole story is about a Fort Worth orphanage back in the early 30s that hired a football coach to come and start a football team because the orphans had nothing to do, and they were, except work. And so they, they took boys that were about, 14 to 18 years old and they formed a football team and of course they they have incredible exploits and incredible story uh, sports story there but there's a scene in this movie that really captured my heart one of the boys is about 17 years old I think he's a quarterback of the team and they're all kind of in this joint living quarters kind of like a barracks and this woman comes in and they call out his name and she said I'm your mother now, his mother had abandoned him when he was just an infant. He didn't really even know her. And, and she walked up to him and she kind of looked at his face and kind of felt of his face. And she called him by a certain name. He said, well, they call me this today. And she said, how old are you now? And, and he had to tell her, I'm 17. And then she said, well, uh, she said, I'm so sorry I left you and you're going you're gonna to come with me now. You're coming with me. And he said, I, I don't even know you. I, I'm it was kind of obvious that she had some maybe mental problems or uh, emotional issues. And, and he goes, I, I, no, I, I don't know you. I, I'm not coming with you. She said, you're coming with me right now. And he said, no, I, I don't want to come with you. And she slaps him across the face. And then she starts cursing him. And then she slaps him again and slaps him again and slaps him again all in front of his friends. And tears start coming down his face. And she marches out the door. And he turns around and he falls on his bed. And in this moment, 
all of the rage and the anger and the hurt of abandonment and rejection that he had bottled up his whole life just came flooding at him and he started beating his bed with his fist and screaming and crying and yelling and he threw the mattress off the bed and he's just, he's just hurting so badly. And all these other young men knew what he felt and they came around him and they picked him up and they embraced him. And they said, we are your family. We are your family. And when I saw that, I said, that's what the church is like. There are so many people in this world that feel slapped in the face, rejected, abandoned, hurt, disappointed in life, angry. But the church of Jesus Christ, we're one. And our mission is to gather people in the name of Jesus and say, come be a part of this family of God. That's what we're called to be. We're family, we're one. That's what Jesus prayed for. He prayed that we would be one. One in love, one in purpose, one in family. And that happens through the gospel. And folks, we cannot allow wedge issues of our day to separate family. We cannot. Our unity is centered on Christ and Christ knows. We need to think about that before I return that Facebook post or I think about that before I make a comment or I think about that. I choose to defer to my brother. I choose to love my sister. I choose to care for them. I, even though I may disagree with them on certain issues, I choose to love them and care for them in spite of those things because our unity in Jesus is most important. That's what Jesus prayed for. And then at, at the end of this prayer, Jesus closes up with these words. Look at verse 24, and I'll just close with these two. He said, Father, I want these you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the, the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. I love that. He said, Father, I just want them to be with me where I am. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about heaven. And really in these verses, he gives us just this little glimpse of heaven. He said, I want them. He's talking about you. I want them. He sees you. I want all of them to be with me where I am so that they can see my glory so that we can finally be one. And in heaven, we're going to see the glory of God. In heaven, we're going to be with them. In heaven, we're going to be together. In heaven, we're finally going to be one without sin and all the stuff that separates and no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. In heaven, we're going to be one. In heaven, we're going to be united. But you know what? You can experience a little bit of heaven here on earth. And that's when we walk in community. Jesus said, I pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think on earth we can have a little bit of heaven when we love each other, when we care for each other, when we pray for each other, when we serve together, when we become a family we're fulfilling the prayer of Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me for just a minute? This unity that Jesus prayed for really starts with the gospel.
That's what makes us one. And the gospel is, is very simple. That though God made us to know him in a deep and personal way and to fulfill the purpose he's given us in life, that we have gone our own way. We have lost our way. We have served ourselves and not him. We have glorified ourselves and not him. We've broken his law, we've broken his heart, and we have gone our own direction. And we cannot save ourselves. We can't right the wrong. We can't undo the mess we've made. And in our lostness, in our waywardness, Jesus came looking for us. Our shepherd came after us. And he was born in Bethlehem and he lived a perfect life and showed us the love of the Father. He revealed his glory to us and we see it in the pages of scripture. And he went to a cross and he died on the cross and on that cross all your sin was put on Jesus and he died in your place and he was buried and he rose again the third day and he offers new life and forgiveness and a clean slate and starting over to all who will turn to him in saving faith. And he offers a family for you to be with and one that will not just only be for this world but for all eternity. But you have to say yes to him. You have to say yes, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Come into my life, change me. I want this new life that you offer. It's a choice you make. So today I want to give you a chance to say yes to Jesus. Maybe you've known about him, you believe in him, but you've never come to saving faith in him. Then here's your opportunity right here, right now. If right now you feel the tugging of God in your heart, you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, yes, this is you, then that's him saying, this is your moment. So I'm going to pray a simple prayer of faith. I'm going to walk you through that. If that is your heart's desire of God's working in your heart. And so and I'm going to do that in just a minute, but I'd like right now, if you say, pastor, I want you to pray for me in that. I'm not, I want you to lift up your hand so I can see it and I can know that God's working in your heart and I can pray for you. All right, I'm not going to call you out, but I will know that God's working in your heart and I will lead you in that prayer right where you're seated. So if God's working in your heart right now, just lift up your hand right now. Say, pastor, pray for me. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Lift it up so I can see it. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Anybody else? All right. Thank you. Okay. Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. All right. God's moving in my heart. I need Christ. Lift it up where I can see it. Okay, you can put your hand down. Just pray this simple prayer with me. God sees your heart. God knows your heart. It's not really about the words as much as it is your heart before him. Just pray this prayer with me. Dear Father, I know I've sinned against you. I know I've gone my own way. I am lost. But I believe that you sent Jesus to die on a cross for me. And I believe he rose again from the dead. And so I'm asking you now, please forgive me. Please come into my life. Wash me clean. Make me pure on the inside. Lord, I, I turn from my sin to follow you. And I want to follow you all the days of my life. Lord, thank you for loving me.
Thank you for giving me a family to be a part of. I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Father, I thank you for your unfailing love. Thank you for your word that's so clear and so relevant for us today. Lord, I pray that as we go into this week, that we would love each other well. Lord, I pray that the the primacy of Christ would rule and reign in our conversations, in the things that we say, the things that we do. Lord, I pray that the world would know that you are who you claim to be because they see you reflected in us how we love each other, how we care for each other. So Lord, I pray to that end that that you would use us, God. Make us one, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,